0: The book of Romans, chapter 12, I have just jumped into the narrative there. And Paul is going to write to the church at Rome and he will declare a truth, but there is instruction. Um, without the need of validation. Paul writes, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Everyone say honest. If it be possible as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, we are talking about reaching for a level of personal integrity. The call to personal integrity um, is very difficult to quantify and corporately we are simply made up um, of the individual commitments and the lives of the people. So, if anyone says that the church is a spiritual church or if it's a corrupt church, it is only um, viewed in that way based upon the individual. The individual life is what is reflected in the church, not the opposite way around not it's not. It's not the church then reflected in the home or in the life. It's the life reflected in the church. So if the church will be a spiritual entity, it's because personal integrity has been um, embodied in the individual life. Personal integrity in the individual life. One of the great challenges of The apostolic church is that in the apostolic church, we are led by the Spirit, and we are not led by the letter. And the letter could be attributed to a traditional church that employs liturgy or a program in the apostolic Pentecostal church because we believe that we have to be born of the Spirit also, John 3 and 7. That means that we we flow with the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us access um, to to an individual walk with God. Catholicism removed that, and Catholicism um, in a, in in about the fourth century was challenged, but it was not really. Uh, changed until many centuries later so we learn Catholicism the word laity which of course is not a biblical idea and we also knew from Catholicism that the minister the priest would be called also the father and so people would instead of going to Jesus Christ himself they would have multiple different venues or ways to express their petitions, their needs, their reports. Even to get to Jesus in those structured religions, and especially that one, there was other venues. The Queen of Heaven petitioned Mary that she would petition her son, Jesus Christ. Petition the priest that he would petition Mary. Um... And so Pentecostalism uh, doesn't follow that pattern. It, It follows the pattern of the individual life where you address the Lord as the scripture would declare, you come boldly before the throne of grace. In our church, we ask people to pray for us. We'll talk to one another. Please pray for me. But that is really sharing the burden and of course in that particular uh, thought that does not mean that we pass off our prayer into the hands of someone else but we we just ask someone to help us pray. Now this is important when it comes to integrity because your personal integrity matters to the church. In fact, the Bible gives us very clear instructions and examples in the Old Testament about how a lack of personal integrity damages the body even if the body doesn't know who is lacking in personal integrity. So, Joshua says to the men, let's go over the Jordan River and the Jordan River parts and And at that season that they went through the Jordan River, we, we can safely assume that that was... That was a a monumental feat because it was the time of the flooding. So the Jordan River is flooded, the outer banks are flooded, and incredibly enough, God sends them through on dry ground just as he did during 40 years earlier during the the escape of um, the children of Israel from Egypt. So in this particular way, there's no rod or staff. Moses is not standing there, and so... The priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, and the moment their feet hit the water, the water rushes back, and now it stands up just as it did before. it. There's a wall now. But they stand in the middle of the Jordan River. They go over the Jordan River. The men from each tribe take large rocks from the middle of the Jordan. They set them up as stones so that, as Joshua said, when your children ask what these stones or what meaneth these stones, you'll tell them what God did for us. They get over into the Canaan land. The promised land. The first obstacle is the greatest battle of their lives. The well fortified city of Jericho. And because they're in such disharmony and disunity at that juncture. Of course Joshua tells them don't speak until the last moment when I tell you to speak. And they march around the city seven days. Six days one time each. On the seventh day they march seven times. At the end there is a shout. There is a praise. There is a rapport. And... The trumpets will sound and the walls will come down. This provides a level of arrogance to the people because they have followed obedience. And the city that should not have ever been defeated, now they've laid to waste. But God said to them, don't take anything from that city. Burn it all. I want you to burn everything. Of course, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? You know, I mean look, if you found something and it didn't matter to anyone else, I mean, who's going to really miss a little wedge of silver and and some garments and some silk? Who's going to miss it? And so Achan thought, hey, I'll just take that and I'll put it underneath my leather place in my tent and I'll just kind of bury it underneath my tent. No one will know the wise. No one will be the wiser. Then the army faces the next battle. And the next battle is a little farming community. These are renegade men, they're evil men, but there's a farming community. They don't really even have weaponry. sickles and and um, other tools of trade and In that little town called AI, the armies the, that are now fresh from a victory are defeated, and Israel is removed. They go back home around their campfires. That night, the women are weeping over the loss of their sons and their husbands. Fathers have been slain in the battlefield against Ai. And there is Joshua. He is scratching his head. He knows something is wrong and he goes to God to ask him, Why were we victorious in Jericho, but we were defeated in Ai? How come we we, we fought this incredible battle and won it, but this small little something... It just kicked us all the way home. It defeated us. It it destroyed us. How could I be so overwhelming, victorious in this major thing of my life, but in this part of my life, I have failed? How could I be used of God in this incredible arena, but in this little portion of my life, I am a total failure? How does God get such great victory here and the devil overcome me here and that ladies and gentlemen is the story of your personal integrity you see most of our lives are revealed not in the big victory in the big moments but we are uncovered in the small things that defeat us We consider them insignificant. We consider them easily conquerable, but they were not. And death occurred among the men of Israel because one man, nobody knew, disobeyed God. Can you imagine the church today? Would God lay that to our charge? Sin in the camp disobedience in the church stagnates every victory, every time. So when you sit in the church service, or you're at home, or you think, this won't matter, hey, this this is me, the church's got a lot of people. We got a lot of praying people. It's all right, I just got this little hang up, or it's okay if I'm defeated here. Remember what I'm telling you right now. Your personal life is reflected at the church. Your living is reflected at the church, not the other way around. You, you never leave yourself. You never pass it off to a priest, a father, someone who petitioned, and then they absolve you from your issue. No, no. no. This is something that is part of who you are. And when you decide you're going to be in unity and pray and seek God. Now I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about sometime during the week. You decide to say no to the to the forces of the devil or, or to sinful activity. What you've just done is strengthen the whole body. When you decide to make a personal commitment to God or prayer. Or maybe you just, you fast a day. No one knows you're fasting and praying that day. What you've just done is you've just brought in strength to the body. The greatest church services we've ever had is when a large group of people came in expecting God to do something great and they were praying all week that God would do something great. The greatest services we ever had were at the end of a fast when people had been praying and fasting and they walked into the church and there was this collective, incredible, corporate prayer, powerful word of unity. And the greatest failure of any church is when people lived immoral lives and thought they could hide it when they got to the house of God. So, of course, Achan was revealed he had disobeyed God and the failure of Israel was laid in the lap of a single man who disobeyed God. You see, personal integrity matters to everybody. To be honest is, a, is an interesting thing today. Um, I'm sure this, is, this has been uh, well rehearsed and probably taught and probably seen in, in, in generations before this generation or among us. But it strikes me so strange how difficult it is for people just to tell the truth. You would think... I would think. Maybe I'm a little naive. People don't tell the truth. Honesty is critical if you want to ever stand before God. You must be honest. And honesty is is the opening page of everything that's decent to be honest. Can I just offer this thought to you, there is is no such thing as a white lie. There's no such thing as a black lie. There's no such thing as a a color-coded lie. There's no no light lie and and egregious lie. they are just lies. There's no situational ethic lies that are more important, or maybe I should say, Less damaging than the outright lie. Honesty is critical. And when honesty is removed from our lives, several things commence. Several things happen when honesty is gone. And I'll give you five of those things, and none of these are exhaustive, but I'll give you five of these, these thoughts here. The first thing that happens in dishonest conversations is misdirection. If you ask how to get to Indianapolis, but you know you really wanna to go to Chicago, you know you're not going to Indianapolis, but you wanted someone to, to tell you how to get there, you have no intention of going there. You just want them to think that you're going to Indianapolis, but in reality, you're, you're headed in some other direction. That's called misdirection. Misdirection is when there's a dishonest conversation going on. And and um, and to further unpack that, wrong destination occurs out of that, and immoral behavior occurs out of that. Because when you give someone a response, or there's a dishonest conversation going on, it's not pure, it's not godly, it's not holy, That misdirection happens. So if someone asks me or asks you, uh, you know, do you think I should should give my tithe? I really have a tough time paying my bills. If it's it's not an honest conversation, then it's not going to be pure. And Then what they'll do is they'll answer you based upon their relationship with you. I'm living with this man. Do you think it's really bad since I love him? And then all of a sudden, This dishonest, impure, misdirection, um, uh, wrong destinations, immoral behavior evolves or, or is the result, even, of that dishonest conversation. Number two is a misinterpretation. So, I've often said this, that when someone is dishonest, if I ask a question and they're dishonest... Then there's a misinterpretation. There's no, you can't interpret something correctly. And, and this happened in the, in, in the Bible times, a dishonest people, because they focused on the outward. That was deception. It was deception. It was an outward thing. It was deceiving someone. Jesus addressed the Pharisees and he called them whited sepulchers. Now that does, that's not offensive to you, but it was very offensive to them. He called them whited sepulchres full of dead man's bones. I trying, was trying to think of, of a relatable, offensive statement that I could give to all of you, but everything I thought of was uh, inappropriate to say from the pulpit. Jesus called them whited sepulchres full of dead man's bones. He called them vipers, snakes. Come to find out, he was into name calling go reading your bible do you read your bible <laughs> he was very mad he he called them hypocrites boy it made them mad they wanted to kill him that's that's Jesus of Nazareth, that's the one you praise and worship and give glory to. Yes, he was, because he knew he had to expose something because they were dishonest. They were always dishonest, and they did not, they wanted to appear to be holy and righteous, and so it was a misinterpretation of everything they presented, so the outward it was They were deceiving people by their outward appearance. But then inward, there was corruption. It was the corrupt inward. That was the, what the Lord was saying. You are corrupt inside. You're deceiving people on the outside and you're corrupt inside. That's the misinterpretation. That's what can happen to anyone who is coming to church. You have this idea that it doesn't matter. I can do anything I want. And the outward doesn't matter. It's just the inward. I will tell you the outward and the inward both matter. And if you follow another pattern, it's going to lead you down to a immoral, corrupt lifestyle. Trust me when I tell you. Some of you are have are struggling with this. You've been struggling with this for a long time. I just want to let you know this. i got to tell you one more time. You have to have an honest conversation with God and stop saying and asking What you're doing if it's going to send you to hell or not. You need to start asking, does this help me get closer to the Lord? Instead of dismantling and refuting every conviction and teaching. Have an honest conversation. Are you closer to God since you started to do that? Number three is dismantling trust. You know, when people don't speak truth... It's hard to trust them. It's hard to trust them. Um, I've been asked for many things. I've given many things based upon a statement that I that I heard or someone addressed me, and I did things, and come to find out that that the request that was made um, was totally false. and And so, the next time that I'm asked for something, it kind of you know, you kind of feel burned, you know, and you feel like, boy, that person can't be trusted. And so, when there's the 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 result of this of this dishonest conversation, there's a lack of trust. You know, these simple things. Um, I'm I'm concerned about people who who lie about little things that are not even big things. You know, where'd you go today? Oh, nowhere. I just went to the store. Went well. That's not really true. Yeah, I left that part out. Well, okay. Well. Where, I mean, I mean it, it doesn't, you don't have to give a big explanation, but you know. I mean, it's, it, it just seems that we've, we've gotten into this conversation where we think that we can just leave out whatever we want to and we're not having honest conversations. I tell you, trust will be dismantled very quickly. And we have said this many times to our own kids. If you did something wrong, it's better that you tell us. Uh, I'm one of our, I better not go to that story. That's a bad, I will really get in trouble for that one. Tell the truth. Can we just say tell the truth? <laughs> Number four is a diminished authority. You see, we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm just skimming the surface of this. When fathers don't tell the truth, they strip themselves of moral authority. When honesty is not implemented in the life of men and women, fathers and mothers, you are removing your authority from yourself. There's a diminishing of authority. And you could write in moral authority. We're going to get to moral authority in time. Finally, the the path or the pursuit of sin, because dishonesty is the path of sin. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. This is is very important that we have honest conversation among people. And I I like what James Foss said. He wrote, and I I put it in your handout, honesty is is more than not lying. It's truth-telling, truth-speaking, truth-living, truth-loving. Mm-hmm. The honest report, the personal integrity, personal integrity matters so much. You can't even really prove that you have personal integrity, but it will be very clear that everyone will know that you have it, and it will be very clear that people know that you don't have it. More than all of that, God knows what's in the heart of people. Let me just tell everybody who's interested. You may not be interested in this, but. The anointing comes from God. God gives the anointing. Everybody understand that? I can't fake God out. I need the anointing. I'm not going to get the anointing if I have no personal integrity. Now you may not know it, but God knows it. If I took the silk, the garment, the wedge of silver and put it under my tent and disobeyed God in whatever way that means. Metaphorically, I did that. God is not going to bless me with his anointing. I cannot be anointed publicly if I have no integrity personally. God is not a fool. In fact, the Bible says God's not going to be mocked. He's not going to be mocked. Whatever we sow, if I sow to the spirit, so I would say to all of you, this is critical. Now, just because you speak your mind doesn't mean you're being honest. Oh no, I told him what I thought, and though that's not honesty. That's that, It's mostly ignorance. It's not honesty. You can be you can be wrong and be honest. Well, I'll t- I just I just tell it as it is. I just I just. I don't agree with that. And I'm honest. I'm honest about it. I just don't really believe you have to do all that stuff. I, don't, I just don't believe in all that. I'm honest. You're not honest. That's not honest. In fact, that's a deviation from the scripture. Go back to the scripture. So I don't want you to equate speaking what's in your heart and mind revealing what's as an honest communication. No, no. no. that's just That's just brazen communication. That's not honest communication. An honest report entails a couple of features and, I, and and surely there's more but i wanted to get to the main thoughts the the big rocks here and the first feature is motive motive it's what is unspoken motive if you find the motive of a person you found the person all you have to do is find the motive now that's that's that can be tricky find the motive what's their motive if i can so I don't always know everyone's motive. I'm, I have I, I found out, when I first started pastoring, I thought I had this incredible gift that I could just read people and knew exactly who they were. Man, I was so far off. I was so far off. I was just striking out every day. And I found out, I must not have that gift. <laughs> years have taught me a few things. And one of the that's taught me about motive is I don't really know what everyone's motive is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them the benefit of the doubt that their motive is pure, but I'm not concerned about their motive. I'm concerned about mine. I don't know how many times I've sat down at a coffee shop, Java Hoat. I, I think I should set up a desk there. I need my name on one of those. I mean, I've just worn out one of those booth areas. There's three guys that get there at 5.30 in the morning. They sit there and occupy that thing until about 10.30. I'm just aggravated at them. I'm going to get there at 5.15. I promise you I'm going to get there. I'm going to take their booth. I know exactly who they are. And they're very friendly to me. They're nice because they know I cannot get there because they've got there before me. I've just been very tired at 5 o'clock. But I'm kind of angry and it's coming. And I'm in there. And I can't tell you how many times I've told people. When the conversation started, I want you to know what my motive is. I'm after you. I'm not after your money. I'm not after your talent. I'm after you and your family. I want to see you saved. It's wonderful when I just lay the cards out on the table. I'm after your life. I got to tell you, I'm not here just to have coffee. Because God forbid I was just here to buy $5 cup of coffee. I know that's not worth $5. These people are ripping me off. I'm here because I want you to be dedicated to the kingdom of God. I'm not going to shoot the breeze. I don't have time to talk sports, politics, or the weather. I'm there for a motive. I want you to know what my motive is right away. I want you to know. In fact, I want to tell you what my motive is here tonight. My motive here tonight is to call everybody back to a life of personal integrity. I want you to be dedicated to the house of God. Here's my motive. I want you to build your entire yearly calendar around the church. I want you to think, no, I can't be gone on that that vacation because we got a special service. That's Heritage Sunday. I can't be gone that that Sunday because that's a special time to be in the house of God. Uh, We can go this weekend because that's best for the church. Think of that. That's my motive. I want you to build your lives around the operation of the body. It's incredible that we that, 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 that we can have what we have. And I'll tell you why. Because many people have done that. The motive of an individual. Think of the motive. And Paul writes, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. The hidden things. He's, he's renouncing, denouncing. He's putting away... Motive, dishonest motive, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully because people love to use the Bible for their own means. No, the preachers, teachers, Bible people, people of the church have tried to use the Bible to discredit other people, to shame them, to cast dispersions on them, to condemn people. Paul is saying, no, we've, we've renounced that. The hidden things, the motive to try to do all that stuff. Do you know that the Bible can be the most condemning book the world has ever read? When it's used incorrectly, the Bible can can just decimate the lives of people. If it's used incorrectly, and even Paul wrote that the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But by manifestation of the truth... Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What is he talking about? That's a personal integrity. Your conscience. You ought to have the conscience to say, God, speak to me. Not call up somebody or not Facebook or Instagram someone to say, text someone. Do you think this is wrong? When did you start asking someone else about what God thinks? What does God want me to do? So what we've done is we've taken the advice of other people who lead us straight away from the plan of God and they, it, our personal integrity is crippled because we've got validation from people who are carnal and worldly. when God never gave us that validation. Number two, not only is, is this big feature the motive, what's unspoken, but it's the conversation that's what is spoken. Conversation. Let your conversation be yes. Say, yay, yay, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. You don't have to elaborate. Every time I elaborate, I get myself into trouble. Every time someone says, now, can you tell me what you mean by that? I mean, what I mean is no. (laughs) Every time I start to elaborate, every time I start to to try to explain what I meant by no. (laughs) No. Every time we open up our mouth, every time you speak, you have the propensity to make a mistake. The most dangerous place in this church is behind this microphone. It's a dangerous place. Trust me, that's why Paul said there should not be many teachers among you. Because it's a dangerous location. Because every time you open up your mouth, you, you, you can make a mistake. It's the conversation What is spoken? And this is really kind of a tool of the devil. You know, the the devil loves for us to speak. In fact, the more we speak, the more we get ourselves in trouble. I'm a firm believer that after about an hour on the phone with somebody, you're probably gossiping about somebody else. It's probably hard to spend two hours on the phone with people without gossiping about somebody else. I mean, you've got to be super narcissistic just to talk about yourself for two hours. Now, if you are, then I, then I, I retract what I just said. But then you've got another problem to deal with if that's, if that's the case. The difference between the courier and the messenger, I, I put this in your in your handout because I wanted to make sure that we could we could parse these words and I want to make the distinguish here. And they're they're intended as our working definitions. They're, we're going to declare a truth. So a normal conversation, of course, a courier, it was derived from the Latin word Corarius, describing a person that carried leather. Anyone who carried leather, they was a the courier. But we're going to use this term as someone who would represent a report of ill intent. Let me talk to you about the messenger. So in our, in our working definition, the messenger is someone who is doing well for good intent. The messenger is someone who will bring um, truth with them. And it's going to be truth in love. I, I, I really... As I, I've looked through the scriptures so many times, I saw, uh, I saw multiple instances, but one jumped out of me, that there was a messenger sent to Joseph, and in Genesis 50, he said, thy father did command thee before he died, saying, so shall ye say unto Joseph, forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of God of thy father. Joseph wept, he spake to them. It's interesting to me. This was a message of love. It was sent, we, we would say now it was sent from the grave. It was the last, maybe like the last will and testament of Jacob. And it was a message of love. Because truth can also damage people. And I, I've told you this on a number of occasions. I'll just briefly cover it. But, but the enemy and people use things to hurt one another. A lie, a lie is the first level, an accusation, an innuendo, and truth without love. Truth without love will hurt you every time. When you speak something about someone that's factually true, but you don't say it in love, it's unnecessary and unneeded. Uh, and oh, oh my, you've got a big nose. Well, that might be true, but it's unnecessary, it's not with love. You point out some flaw of somebody, You know, point out something, it's true, but it's not truth with love. In fact, Paul said, but speaking the truth in love, that ye may grow thereby. Nobody grows without truth in love. Um, it changes the way you speak to people. But the messenger always brings truth with love, this This, of course, could be applied to many people. In fact, it should be applied to all the church. But it also could be applied to whoever is preaching the word. Number two, intentions are clearly known. They're, 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 They're clearly known. It's 2 Samuel 15. There came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. This was not something that he was trying to say negatively. But there was an intention And the intention was, David, you're in trouble. The hearts of the people have turned away from you. They're now with Absalom. Intentions are known. Messengers are known. We don't have conversations among one another because we don't know our intentions. And the intentions are always tied into motive. If someone loves me and their motives are right... I know their intentions are good when they speak to me. I want to talk to you about something. You need to know this. It's a good message. Even if the message does some surgery on my life. Number three is the removal of self. When self is in the way, the message is always distorted. Self. So the right message has to be absent. The more absent of the the messenger itself. And I'll get to that in the last one. Number four... That individual submits to a higher authority. So the scripture, the voice of God, they're not speaking of themselves. Even Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they're not of me, they're of my father. So what he was saying was, this is not a fleshly word. It's not a fleshly gospel, this is of my father in heaven. It made it, it of course it was egregious to those those religious Pharisees and Sadducees that heard that word at the time. They did not like the, the fact they were opposed to Jesus when he said that. But he was declaring something. I'm not speaking of myself, but I'm speaking of what my Father in Heaven has said. And finally, the messenger acts as an ambassador. If you, if you study the role of an ambassador, Brother Stoneking preached a great sermon years ago about ambassadors. In fact, that was the first sermon I ever heard him preach when I was 15 in, in, in Bridgeton, Missouri. I went to hear him. I never knew him before. And of course, that was just a couple of years ago. And I heard him preach ambassadors. It was was an awesome thing. The ambassador represents something higher than him. He, He speaks and gives messages and he has to make sure that he represents the authority very well. That is the messenger, bringing a word. So I would just say to all the church, if you ever have a word for one another in this church, remember, you remove yourself. You speak the things of God, not what you think. You speak with love, truth and love, always truth and love. You recognize that whatever you say, if you ever say to someone, I got a word for you, you better make sure that it's, that is congruent with the scripture and not something you just made up. Remember what I preached on Sunday morning. We got to have a word from God. We can't have a word from people. We got to have a word that comes right from the Lord. And the only way you get a word from the Lord, and this is what Jeremiah said, you didn't stand before me, so I didn't give you a word. See, if you're not in the presence of God, you don't know what the Lord has to say. It's very difficult to hear from God if you never commune with God. It seems like that would be counterintuitive to say, well, I have a word from God. No, I never pray just what I felt. You probably... You probably don't have a word from God. But if you'll stand before the Lord, if you'll, if you'll pray, God will give you something. He's never going to go against his written word. Because remember, remember, the Rima is always grounded, rooted in the logos. The Rima is the right now word. The logos is the written word. The Rima is not going to defy the logos. God's not going to speak to you individually something that he already had inspired in his book. It's not going to be different. It's always going to be the same. So, come, here comes the courier. And the courier is, he's a different kind of a cat. He's, he's got trouble. See, he brings truth without wisdom. Maybe lies without regard. The courier is not only the gossip. The courier is the one who brings information from one person to another without regard to the recipient. Truth without wisdom. Not too long ago, someone said, I got great news for you, pastor. I've got good news and great news. He said, I got good news. Good news is that so-and-so is going to Come by the church. The great news is two guys at work were talking bad about you. Isn't that great? I just gave the sideways look, something wrinkled up on my forehead. He said, You know, the Bible said you'd be hated if everybody's going to hate you. For Isn't that great? So I I punched him in the nose and I he he started bleeding. No, I didn't do that. I I I didn't do that. No, I didn't I didn't do that. That's bringing you brought truth, but there was no wisdom behind that. There was no wisdom. You you passed along. You're a courier of some information, but there was no wisdom in that. You see, and this is what happens all the time. People open up their mouth. They're going to bring truth, uh, something that's factual, but there's no wisdom behind it. In fact, even. All of you that teach anyone else Bible, let me just tell you right off the bat. You can teach truth, but you better have wisdom because you might be teaching some, some things that are true, but they cannot receive it yet because they're not to that level to receive it. If you ever get in your first Bible study with anyone, do not talk about Melchizedek. How about the sincere milk of the word? See, you're not proficient just because you know something. You're proficient if you know how to deliver it with wisdom. But it's not just truth with wisdom. Often the courier brings a lie without regard because they don't care how it offends or hurts the person who hears it. Number two, the courier seeks personal gain because they want to be recognized, they're reward oriented, there's a motive. The courier is not looking to cast light or give glory to some someone else, but they're looking for personal gain. Number three, the courier interjects opinions, or they'll add to the original. Here's, now, here's what I think, or here, here's what I want to tell you. Here, what did that? What did someone say about me? Yeah, they said, "Well, you're you're you usually end up coming a little late." I. Is that what they said? Yes. Now, what I think they meant was that, that you know, you are, you're lazy. This is my opinion. I don't think they like you. That's not what they said, but that's just what I feel. You know, the opinionated stuff. Now, we're going to throw a bunch of stuff in there. Now, let me just tell you, this is a damaging thing. You see, you lack personal integrity and dishonesty when you share opinions that damage people. You're just a courier. You're a courier of things that damage people. And You interject opinion number four. The courier establishes self-governance, and they attempt to dominate the recipient. It's the dominant. You know, it's interesting when when I I can remember a man he come to me and he said he said this is of course it he wasn't here in this church but a gentleman said something to me. He said I have to tell you something, and he told me, and it was it was it was a pretty. Bold statement. But as he began to talk, I realized it wasn't what he was saying that 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 was wrong. It was that he was trying to dominate my spirit. By being so brash and so bold, he wanted to govern over me. He wasn't leading me to Jesus Christ. He was he was establishing his own authority so he could dominate my spirit. This happens quite a bit especially among religious people. Um, Of course, this happens in the workplace all the time. It's, let me tell you what I know. And then after they rattle off a bunch of trivia, they do that to wow you. And then once you're wowed and you feel, maybe I don't know as much of that person, that spirit of dominance comes over. They want to dominate the recipient. I got something to tell you. We were on a on the tour bus uh, in New York. And uh, the guy that was doing the tour bus, man, he was brilliant. He knew how many Starbucks were in New York. It was, it was like over a thousand Starbucks. He, he knew how many Burger Kings and McDonald's and he knew everything about the Gutenheim Museum. He knew, he knew details about everything. I was, and he would rattle it off. No one could remember what he said. All I knew was, I'm dumb, and he is smart. All I, I, all, I could, all I could realize was, this guy knows a lot, and I don't know anything. And he was so profound at knowing that stuff. Of course, that was just his spiel, you know. And he had a lot of humor, in it. he was just, it was just, he was just brilliant. That guy was brilliant. And, and... He could have easily, he didn't do it, but he could have easily just tried to intimidate everybody around him, but he didn't do it. He said, now, if anyone else asks you about that building, they always get it wrong. I'm going to tell you, I'm the only guide that knows about that building. He said that four or five times. And I think he was probably right because he was actually the one that drew the map. He drew the map where all the buses go. And um, we had another tour guide the next day, and I knew... I could just tell. See, judgmentalism. I, I became judgmental. And the next two guys, he was a bum. He didn't know nothing. And I just had disregard for him. Just I just disrespect for him. Because the first tour, tour guy was so good. I wanted to ask him, how many Starbucks are in New York? I knew he didn't know the answer. I didn't say anything. I just put my earpiece off. Because I knew that guy, I don't know what he's talking about. The first guy did. This dominant concept happens in the churches where people try to, we're trying to, Find a way. In fact, in, in my own personal notes, I wrote little small kingdoms are established because they want to self governance They're going to they're gonna govern themselves. And finally, the courier acts independent of higher authority. They usurp authority. They're independent. I love what one pastor has been teaching. He's denounced all independent churches. Oh, boy. And I, I, I couldn't tell you all of his all of his grammar and all the things he said, but he is profound. No one's independent. Really, no one's independent. What are you talking about? Independent. Are you saying that you have no authority, no umbrella? Nobody can govern you. Nobody can look over your shoulder. Nobody can look in your finances. No one can check your spirit. No one can check your doctrine. That's so anti-Bible. No one's independent. We are interdependent. We're dependent on God and dependent on one another. And independent means you don't need a body. Independent spirits mean you don't need to go to church. Well, I can go here or go there. No, you can't. In fact, you ought never even leave a church unless God tells you you should. When God directs you, then you should. Not because you get angry or mad. or you. But if God directs you and the spirit is gone from the church and there's no doctrine in the church, that's when you say, okay, this is no longer in truth. But the idea that we're independent, we can just do whatever we want to. How about accountability? Well, well, no, I don't want anyone. I don't want you to know where I'm at, Pastor. I'll come when I want to come. Really? Is that, how you, is that how you live at home? Go tell your wife. Now, listen, I'm going to be home sometime. You don't worry about me. It might be five and it might be nine. Don't worry about me. Is that how you want your children to be? You want your kids to walk in and say, hey, listen, you know what? I appreciate this house. It's so nice. It's always welcoming. When I come, I hope you hug me, welcome me. But I can't tell you I'm always going to come home every day. I got things to do. Really? Is Is that how we work? How about you get, you're graduated from high school, the big achievement. You know, I think you might have to go to jail if you don't go to high school. I think that, is that right? Maybe not. Oh, we graduated. Now we are adults. Oh, really? As, as, one, as one family struggled and their kids were telling their parents, you know, we're adults. Oh, okay. Oh, oh good. good, 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 good. Now, now, you go to the store. You buy all your own groceries. And when you come home, we're going we're gonna to divide the water bill and the electric bill. And we're going to talk to veterans because you owe for your independence. Let me just tell you, we don't need a church and want a church of a bunch of independent personalities and people. We don't want that. We want a church that relies upon one another. We're not good without one another. We've got to have one another. We're talking about accountability. You see, the problem with the courier is he always acts independent of authority because he thinks he doesn't have to answer to anyone else in his life. It never ends there. It's always the usurping. See, independence is always the usurping of authority. It means I'm going to dominate whoever is supposed to be above me. And this is a dangerous thing. Now I'm going to give you some biblical examples along this line. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, we find a courier. In fact, there's two men, but they're not, they're not necessarily uh, both appointed. In verse 19, Hamas, son of Zadok, said, Let me run, take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab knew that he should not do that and he said, you are not the one to take the news today. You can take it at another time, but don't do it today. The king's son is dead. You're too anxious. You're too anxious to say this. You don't have the right spirit. Now Joab knew David better than Ahimaaz did. And Joab knew you don't have the right spirit to go humbly before David and tell him that his son is dead. But of course, Hamaz is thinking of personal gain. He's got some things he'd like to do. He, in fact, he's establishing himself here. Joab said, no, let me tell the Cushite. Now, I want you to go tell the king what you've seen. And what did the Cushite do? He bowed down. It was a signal the commentaries will tell you this was a signal of humility from the Kushite. So Kushite or the Kushi, he has a different spirit. You see, you can say the same words. They come across in the spirit that you deliver them. Two people can have the same message, but it's your spirit that translates, not just your words that translate. There are many many problems, many things that I've spoken to all of you. I've done it at the altar many times while our hearts were broken before God and I was able to put my arm around you in a love and say, you're not heading the right direction. We've got to pray together. That moment for me to say those words to people right here in the altar or somewhere where we're crying before God, they are then received. But of course... Hamas would have none of it, so he wanted to say it, and again he said to Joab in verse 22, let let me just run behind him, I'll I'll just, you know, hey, I'll just be a supporter, I'll be the affirming voice, I'll, I'll give a second, Joab replied, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that's going to bring you a reward. There's nothing that's going to gain anything for your life. But but of course, Hamas didn't think that. He thought, this is going to help me. But Joab was trying to tell him, it'd be better for you never to show up. You have no gain. Why do you want to run? You'll have no gain. But he ran anyway. And he wanted to tell the king about the death of Absalom. As if... Repeating those words was going to help David. So when he gets there, when hamas gets there, and and David says, Is everything okay? He realizes right there, right then, oh, I I, I must have made a mistake. And he steps aside and he says to David, you know, there was some confusion and I'm not sure because he realizes he was going to be a courier of information that was not going to be received. He outran the Cushite. He outran the Cushite. Ahamaz wanted to tell the this, this story so bad. he outran, he got to David and David is now has longing in his voice. David's not, he's not there poised, ready. Did we crush my enemy? No, he said, is everything all right? Is it okay? And Hamas realized, uh-oh, I shouldn't have come here. I'm the courier of a destructive message to the king. He stepped aside and said, you know, I don't, I don't really know. I'm, I'm not sure. Of course, he knew exactly, but he did not want to tell. First Samuel 21 Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. If you go down to 1 Samuel 22 and verse 9, you'll find out what happened. Then answered Doag the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and he said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahidab, he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him victuals, gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. What happened there? In this particular story, David is running from King Saul. And there's a price on David's head. And it just so happens that David and a few of his men, they have no sword, they have no food, they're hungry, they have nothing, they have no weapons. And they run into a little town called Nob, where there's a, a small place, a little, a little place of worship. Or sacrifices are made. And there's a, there's a priest. He's, you know, there's, there might be a few hundred people in town. There's a lot of priests there. But, but Ahimelech is the high priest of that area. And, and Ahimelech doesn't know why David's there. He doesn't know. And David says, I, we need some food. And Ahimelech gives him the showbread. And David says, do you have any weapons here? I, you know, I've left my sword. David didn't tell him the whole story. And Ahimelech said, we don't have anything except for the, for the sword of Goliath, which you killed. So I guess the sword belongs to you, and the, the the priest gave David the sword. Now David and his men are full. David has a sword. It just so happened that Doag, which I commonly refer to as the dog, I like to think that the E is silent. He goes back to King Saul. He's a courier. He wants to establish himself. He's seeking for personal gain. He has an opinion. And so he's going to interject his opinion the way he does it. He does it by an innuendo. He doesn't add a critical part of the story. He doesn't say, David showed up at Nob. Ahimelech didn't know why he was there. And Ahimelech helped David. Ahimelech, the priest, helped David. No, what he said was, he showed up. I saw him. Ahimelech prayed for him, gave him food, gave him a sword. Here's Ahimelech. So basically, what Doag did was he made it look like that the high priest Ahimelech was against Saul. And of course, Saul sent men and slaughtered all the priests of that city and ran through and killed Ahimelech with a sword. Doag was a courier. Of half information. He was a courier of an innuendo. Which is the sister of an accusation. And is tied akin to a lie. Hear me ladies and gentlemen. Don't ever speak an in innuendo. Without completing the sentence. Don't ever set someone up for failure. Out of your mouth. That's dishonest communication. It's dishonest communication. I'll give you another. First Kings chapter 19 verse 2 then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying so let the gods do to me and more also if if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time this is an interesting thing because this is a threat this was not with love this is a lie without regard this is an independent of higher authority he she was usurping the authority and the person who brought the message was the courier of, an informa- of the information that was meant to destroy. I'm going to kill you. This is what the queen said. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. In 24 hours, you're gone. Of course, that was a complete lie. And it caused fear in the heart of the prophet Elijah. So much so that he hid out in a cave. Can you imagine that the voice of a wicked person can imprison the voice of Of the prophet. The courier has a lot of damage in their hands. And finally, tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit about the hidden harbor. We're talking about personal integrity, conversation, and motive, what you're discussing. I will warn everyone here tonight, I want to warn you do not speak to people who run down the church. Don't talk to people who bash. The church i'm going to warn you you're going to be corrupted i've never seen anyone befriend someone who belittles the church and they stay pure in their own conversation can you receive that okay maybe 63 percent says yes let me just talk to you about the hidden harbor. And I wrote some on your, on your handout so that you could have it later. Honesty has requirements. Of course, all of it's going to be manifest. No one is ever secretly honest. Did you know that? You know, if you're an honest, it's always going to be proven. There will be evidence. An honest spirit, is, of course, is not pursuit. But there will be evidence. And the same is true of the dishonest person. It may not be immediately known. But the cloaked issue will exist. And sometimes it's due to a past infraction harboring Now, i'm not going to give you all of the facts of of a harbor or how that came to be even the origin of the words and but but by and large the harbor came to be known as the place where the great merchant ships came to port to unload their wares and all of their merchandise the verb of the word however can mean to conceal something from others in our lesson we can see the result of harboring unforgiveness and bitterness We see it in this life of of Ahithophel. Let me just tell you about Ahithophel. The Bible says it like this At the times when kings went off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. This was an interesting thought because David's claim to fame was the warrior. This is why the Lord would not allow him to build the temple. Because he had blood on his hands, and the blood on his hands were his thousands, tens of thousands died in battle. He was proficient at battle; that was his gift. And his that was his that was his gift to be a great um, warrior. One of his gifts also was, was that he was a musician. Um, his calling was to be the king. He was he was really born to be the king. He learned that as a shepherd. He was a shepherd king. And, and David stayed home and, and he had gotten puffed up, lifted up in his own victory. In fact, the songs that the women used to sing was that Saul had killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Of course, this was not a good song to sing, but of course, people, they don't understand that they can set leader against leader by lifting up one and defaming the next. And David now was was at home and he takes the afternoon stroll and and he peers off into the city and on a rooftop a woman, a beautiful woman, is bathing. Um, Bathsheba, she be taking a bath. And she was a beautiful woman. And David lusted after her. He had someone call for her, and she came. Now the men were off in battle, her husband. Uh, Uriah is off in battle, and he is a great warrior. He's well known. In fact, Uriah is a convert to uh, what we would know as Judaism. He's a convert to Israel. He loves the king. In fact, he's devoted. He also loves his wife. He's never thought anything evil. There's no scripture that lets us know that he ever had any misgivings about his wife. And so David invites her into his bedchamber and they have an immoral affair, and she becomes pregnant. Well, in those days, battles took a long time, and not only did they have have a long trip to get to the battlefield, but then they would stay for months, sometimes even a year or two, before they were able to come home. When David found out, because messengers were being sent back and forth, that she was pregnant, he panicked and thought, I've got to do something about this, I need to cover up my own sin. So he called for his general to bring Uriah home. And Uriah came home. He's befuddled. He left the battlefield. He's leading his men in war. And David said, you've been such a good soldier. I want you to take a little r and R. I want you to go home. I want you to be with your wife. I want you to eat good. I want you to sleep in your own bed. I want you to take, just take a week at home. Take two weeks at home. That battle's going to be there. But Uriah is so devoted to David, he says, How can I enjoy my wife, my home, and food while my fellow soldiers are dying on the battlefield? And he laid down on the dirt in front of David's palace. Wouldn't move. For days he just laid there. No one could get him to go home. I'm not going. I'd rather eat dirt. I'd rather eat the grass. I'm not going. Finally, David had no recourse, but he sent him back on the battle. But the message then went to the general that said, Listen, I want you to advance on the army, and then I want all the men to pull back. But don't tell Uriah. Let him be out there in the open. There should be no shields around him, no one to protect him. No one should guard his right flank. No one should guard his left flank. Sure enough, that was an easy kill. To kill your own means that you don't guard your own. They left him out there by themselves, himself. And sure enough, the arrows flew, the swords came, and Uriah died in the battlefield. And David was insincere in his mourning. And so now we have a widow. He rushes to marry the widow so that he can cover up the sin. Of course, people aren't dumb. Even in the Bible days, they can do the math. I don't know why people think they can just cover things up. You know, okay. But the man that was, that was wounded the most was a man who kept it. He kept this offense in his heart. He kept it. He was the man who was the chief advisor to David. He knew David like the back of his hand. He knew exactly what David would do. He loved David. He guided David. He cared about David. Ahithophel cared about David. He thought David was the great man. He, he respected the anointing of David, the kingship, his position. Ahithophel loved him. But Ahithophel knew the real story. He knew it. He was, he was struck at the damage of this. The horrible thing that took place. David married Bathsheba. Now they are husband and wife, and God sends a prophet, Nathan, and Nathan, he he lumbers along, a slow gait, staggered as it were, up to the throne of David. He said, "I've got a story for you, David." David leans forward, his right hand gripping white knuckles on the scepter, and he says, "Tell me the story. I want to know." David is now seeking for something to do, and Nathan says, "There's a man who has." thousands of sheep and he stole the man he stole for the man who only had one sheep and he killed the man and stole his sheep and david said we've got to bring that man before the court and we've got to put judgment on him and nathan that prophet points his finger into david's face can you imagine that and he says you are the man David has a moment to decide what he's going to be. In that moment, he establishes his life. His life hangs in the balance of his response. I tell you tonight, while the word is being preached, your very life hangs in the balance of your response every weekend, every Sunday, every time you hear the word. And in a moment, David has to decide whether or not he's going to be the king or he's going to be the sinner. Whether or not he's going to be sufficient or whether or not he's going to be inept. And he crumbles and he says, I've sinned, I've sinned. He tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he lays down on the very dirt outside of the door of the palace where Uriah slept. And he does that for seven days. And the judgment against him was that the baby that's going to be born is going to die. And in seven days after that baby was born, that baby died. The judgment of God was upon David's life and Bathsheba's life. And the kingdom was very well hurt by that. The battle was won. They came back home. Years, things are going well. But there's but there's an uprising. Because you see, David's not dealing well with his sons. David's got some issues. And one son misuses. He, In fact... He molests a half-sister and David doesn't. Work with it, right? And so Absalom takes up the offense against Amnon. And Absalom kills Amnon. And then he runs off. And then finally Absalom comes back. But Absalom stands in the gate. He usurps the authority. He's got his own message. He's a courier. He tells everybody, The king doesn't understand what you're going through. I understand. You just come to me. Now listen, Don't bother with David. I love you. I care about you. Now, you know what? And I've had people come to this church and say, Now, the church doesn't care about you, but I do. So if you have a need, you just come to me. We'll give you money. I've had people sit in my office and say, well, you know, this this one person told me that the church didn't care about me, so they gave me a love offering. I want to tell you, I'm glad they got the love offering, but you better be very careful. You're standing in the gate. You find out what happened in the Kingsdale, D-A-L-E. Find out what happened there, and you'll find out. God knows all things. You see, the lack of personal integrity is going to catch up to you every time. And the wealth and the health and the well-being of the Spirit... Not of money, not of intelligence, not of talent. It all hinges on the personal integrity of the people. So it doesn't matter if you think you're hidden. We really could have a Holy Ghost explosion, but you gotta stop committing fornication. And you gotta stop lying. And you gotta stop cheating. And you gotta stop cussing. (laughs) This is the great Bible study. And there's several people who are happy that they are very ill tonight and just watching at home. And Absalom starts his own kingdom. He, he, He chases David from the throne. David does not want to have a fight with his son. He realizes how much damage he's done with his own family. David does not want to kill Absalom. So David runs away. He escapes. He's... It's the fight or flight mechanism and he's decided to flee because he, he no longer wants to see bloodshed in his own family. He could not come to kill his son. In fact, at the final battle, he tells his own generals, his captains, he says to them, and I quote, deal gently with my son. Before that t- takes place, there is an advisor, Hithophel. What happened to Hithophel? Hithophel. Well, when Absalom started to rule the kingdom, Ahithophel left David. Now he's a much older man. He went over to Absalom and became Absalom's chief advisor. He was a well-seasoned, wise man. Absalom was on the verge of destroying David. David. And Absalom asked Ahithophel, what should we do? And Ahithophel said, go right now, attack him right now if you want to win. And Absalom, in his youthful ignorance, turned to his peers and said, what do you guys think? And they said, no, let's not do this. Let's get a lot of more people together. We'll get everyone, by the time we get everyone together, we'll have an overwhelming army. If Absalom would have listened to the older, wise man, even though he had defied David, Absalom could have wiped out David. David was defenseless. But the young up-and-coming king, self-appointed king, he listened to his peers. And by the time they got everyone together, it was too late. David had already gathered all of his forces. When Ahithophel realized that Absalom was not going to listen to him, he knew, we're we're all going to be wiped out. Because he knew David like the back of his hand. How did he know him? Because he has been advising David All of those decades. And Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. He was wounded and hurt. He had harbored all of that in his life. All of those years, decades. You see, David did wrong. We don't know. But that in Jewish folklore, Ahithophel loved Uriah, his adopted grandson. He was proud of him. He's a warrior. He loves his country. I'm going to tell you about my grandson. He came back home. He wouldn't even go home. He he laid on the ground. He laid on the dirt. He'd rather be with his, his own army to support Israel than to eat any good food at home. I'm proud of him. David misused him and killed him. And Ahithophel remembered that all of those years. Decades later, He harbored that in his heart. Decades later. He remembered the offense. Ladies and gentlemen. The offense. He remembered it. And that's why when the opportunity came. This spirit came out at him. He remembered the offense. I say to you tonight. Don't let an old offense become your ruin. You're holding on to an old offense. Abuse. Misuse. Misuse. Rejection. It may not come out right now, but in time, it'll manifest itself. The second thing that Ahithophel did was he felt the shame of the death of the firstborn son. You see, that was his family that was cursed. That was his great-grandson that died. And that was his grandson that was murdered. Shame will drive people to do horrible things. I wrote this in your bulletin, I mean in your, your handout tonight. The effects of a bitter spirit should never be underestimated. There are ramifications for past wounds that have not been healed. The spirit of reconciliation entails, among other things, a removal of recompense for past infractions because we all want to get back. You, unless bitterness is dealt with immediately, it will become a cancer to the soul. will distort every decision of your life. He took the opportunity to retaliate. That's what he did. See, harboring is a common issue among people. It's a common issue because we do it. It begins with an offense. It's it's almost always unreconciled. I'm I'm in your handout now. If it's if you harbor it, it's unreconciled. You should go to your the resources of your mind and say, who offended me and how long ago and am I over that? I know what this is. I've been there, I know what this is. I've been there many times. In fact, every time I thought that I, I've now moved past this, I'm, I'm into another thing. Men buy cars and big toys and carry themselves in a way. They do things. To make up for the offense or to prove something. Women put on things. Present themselves in a certain way. To prove something. It all comes from the unreconciled infraction. And then the next word is kept. Then it moves to being kept. It moves into the pages of a record of wrongs. Even though the Bible says keep no record of wrongs. In fact the Bible says in 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 the Psalms the Bible says that the Lord does not keep a record of our wrongs both in the Old Testament and New Testament. But those people who harbor stuff in their life, they have a record they can tell you exactly the time, the day that someone wounded them, someone hurt them. And then that conversation becomes a conversation that's filled with scorn and shame and their whole life is bound up because they've never relinquished all of that. They never got rid of that. I'm going to get to this resolution in a moment. But I would would caution you. People who keep a record of wrongs are the most dangerous people for you ever to be around. They will rub off on you. What they'll do, they'll corrupt your spirit. No one who's bitter ever stayed isolated. Because a root of bitterness grows up. It defiles everybody else. It's It's like a poison. It's like someone with a cold, a flu, pneumonia, coughing. I was somewhere today and somebody started coughing and sneezing right next to me. And and I just ordered the food and I was thinking, I've got to pray for them that they'll be healed immediately. Or I've got to reposition my salad. (laughs) I thought some other things too, and I'll just let it go. But I, this, you, it, that's, it's contagious. There's contagious things. Just as joy is contagious, and faith is contagious. And when I get around people who are full of faith and love the word, it inspires me. People who have a scripture and they know the word, it inspires me. There's been a thousand conversations with Scotty and I sitting at a table and talking about the scripture. It's an iron sharpening iron. The thousands of conversations with with us just discussing the word with mom and dad, just sitting there. And we're all, Dana used to write, she would take a magic marker and a pencil and a pen and write scriptures on her wall. She had a nice walls, but she had scripture, just write scriptures all over her walls. This idea... Of the word being in the in, in our conversation, it helped us with clear communication and honest communication. And 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 that's contagious. It it it, it does something, but but both sides, negativity or, or or someone who's positive, you know you you are going to be whoever you're around. You're gonna become them. This this idea of it and, and 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 if you're around someone who keeps these records of wrongs. It'll infect you, the keeping part. It moves into this now. And then it corrupts the person who keeps it. Damages all the future relationships. It corrupts them. It corrupts the person. Please put that up there. And finally, ultimately the offense is revealed. Because it has been harbored. There will be a revealing. To know that, Jacob was afraid to face Esau because he knew, he thought, in fact, he firmly believed that Esau was harboring the offense. He was very afraid because he knew what he had done. I give you three, in closing, three simple tasks, some steps to honesty. It begins with, of all things, repentance. It's repentance toward God. When David sinned, this is what he said, Lord, against the only have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. It's an admission of dishonesty. This is what I love about new life. We are truly a place where every past can be wiped away and everyone can start over. Even people who have backslidden against against the Lord, all they have to do is come back to God and our arms are wide open And we're saying, come on, let's worship together. Let's just put all the past in the past. You know, we've done that many, many times. And we'll continue to do that many, many times. But repentance is the key. I'm concerned that in the mode of of the gospel that we preach, death, burial, resurrection, repentance, and baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, that we bypass repentance. Repentance needs to take time. And we ought not rush through repentance. Repentance. I don't want to throw you in the water until you have fully died. You need to die. Nobody buries anybody until they die. And when they're dead, then you bury them. And some of us, many of us, maybe all of us, we need to go back to the altar of repentance and repent before God. Honesty starts with opening up your heart to God. The second one is humility before others. That's a difficult thing to do. The moment your conversation begins with I, I don't think I have to, I don't want this, this it's just who I am, you have lost the steps to regain honest conversation. And finally, in our lesson here, it's a restructuring of words and motives. You've got to restructure what you say. You've got to pray about your motives. You've got to restructure your life. That comes right on the bottom of your page. That comes with discipline. Restructuring comes with discipline. Discipline. Right on the bottom of your page. It comes with discipline. It's intentional. You got that? Discipline and intentional. You want to restructure your life? Be disciplined. Be intentional. And then finally, write it over time. Takes time. Don't put the pressure on yourself to be different tomorrow. But... But if you'll change your life one day at a time, next year at this time, you won't recognize yourself. If you'll take five minutes, seven minutes every day to pray. If you'll take one day a month and fast. If you'll read your scripture every day of your life, even if it's just five scriptures or one chapter. In one year, if you do that every day, you'll be a different person. You can restructure yourself. That's right. Amen. And everybody said amen.